Psalm 118, page 828 of your hymnal. Um, this is uh, a portion of the psalm we'll use this morning in our call to worship. and It's a, it's a wonderful psalm. It's a rich one. It's one that is uh, quoted with some uh, regularity in the New Testament. I think you'll see that as we go. Psalm 118, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, His love endures forever. In my anguish I cried to the Lord, and He answered by setting me free. The Lord is with me. He is my helper. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All the nations surrounded me, but in the name of the Lord I cut them off. They surrounded me on every side, but in the name of the Lord I cut them off. They swarmed around me like bees, but they died out as quickly as burning thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed back and about to fall, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Shouts of joy and victory resound in the tents of the righteous. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. The Lord's right hand is lifted high. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. I will not die but live and will proclaim what the Lord has done. The Lord has chastened me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open for me the gates of righteousness. I will enter and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous may enter. I will give you thanks, for you answered me. You have become my salvation. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. O Lord, save us. O Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord we bless you. The Lord is God, and he has made his light shine upon us. With bows in hand, join in the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give you thanks. You are my God, and I will exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Um, It's worth noting here before I pray that Um, That phrase, this is the day the Lord has made, let us be glad and rejoice in it. Often um, we take that in a generic or use that in a generic sense for every day, which is certainly true. Every day is the day the Lord has made and we are glad in it. But specifically in the context of the psalm, in the context of its usage in the scriptures, it's referring to the day that the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. It's the day of the resurrection. It's the day um, that Jesus fulfills this passage, of course, he quotes it and applies it to himself, and before his death and resurrection is a prophecy about him, and so it's specifically about the Lord's day, about the day of the Lord um, coming near to us and fulfilling these things that 
the cornerstone or the stone that has been rejected is now the cornerstone even of his church. Let's pray and give thanks for our cornerstone. Indeed, Father, we give you thanks um, for this day that you have made, um, a day which is again um, a renewal of your covenant with us, this covenant that you have established in the death and resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ, uh, the stone that was rejected by the builders and yet has become uh, through his glorious resurrection and ascension to your right hand, the cornerstone of the new creation, um, the first um, piece of that um, renewal that you will bring to all things, Father, and the one upon whom um, the church is founded, um, which will endure forever. Um, we give you thanks um, for um, the strength um, that you show in the unveiling of your right hand and delivering your son from death. And we give you thanks um, that this day we join in um, with that chorus and say, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, friends, um, I'm going to pass out some handouts. Let's see, Jeremy, and you want to help me? That'd be great. Um, Lauren, you want to help as well? That'd be wonderful. Um, so these handouts are um, going to help us focus on chapters 16 to 19 of Gentle and Lowly, which is what we'll cover today. Um, next week, we will cover chapters um, 20 to 23, and that will take us to the end of the book. Um, so on the 27th of February, we'll start a new um, adult Sunday school class um, in here, all that. And what we're going to do, probably for the rest of the spring, um, until we take our break and in June um, is uh, we're going to look at the uh, ad interim General Assembly report, committee report on human sexuality and that was published last year by um, our denomination. Um, and I'll have a lot more to say about that, what that means, what is an ad interim study committee report, etc. Um, but what you should know um, as you think about that class is that um, that that committee report, which runs about 60, 65 pages or so, um, focuses not only on the question of sexuality generally, but on the question of homosexuality particularly, um, with specific focus. And it's a wonderful document. Um, obviously, um, I would commend it to you to read. I think it's um, really good uh, theological, pastoral, biblical work um, that um, the men who are on that committee, about seven men, uh, put together and have you know it's been distributed and released um, uh, for study and for um, discussion in our uh, denomination. And so we're going to do that. We're going to study it and discuss it. And I think it's a really useful document, and it's, it's an important uh, matter. It's an important topic for us to think about um, in our culture today and even in our lives today um, um, as we think about the question of homosexuality and how to respond with the gospel, with the scriptures um, to that uh, that topic, that discussion, um, that reality in our world. Um, so that's what we're going to do. That's a heads up. Um, before we um, jump into content today um, of Gentle and Lowly, um, any uh, questions um, from last Sunday's sermon, um, which we talked about the importance of Christian burial? Any questions or comments, things to discuss um, from that from that sermon?
Wow, okay. Thought maybe there would be some, but maybe not. It's fine. Um, is that a hand mic? Oh, oh, oh. You're trying to, you're trying to figure out what you want to ask. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, that's exactly how the catechism puts it. I don't know that I have a copy. Um, well, I think I do on my phone because, you know, I've got an app for that. So let me, um, let me pull it up. So let's see. Question 37 of the Westminster Shorter Catechism puts it this way. It says, uh, I love this catechism question. It says, what benefits do believers receive from Christ at death? And the answer is the souls of believers, and this is a really wonderful question that lays out what the scripture teaches about death. The souls of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness. Um, So we believe, as I mentioned last um, Sunday, that that death um, is not just the sort of cessation of brain activity or the, the heart you know, fit stopping to beat or the lungs stopping to breathe, um, but it's the, it's the separation of the soul from the body. Um, theologically, that's what we believe death is. Um, in creation, of course, in Genesis um, uh, 2, we read about how the Lord made the man from the dust and then he breathed the spirit into him. Um, which, of course, evokes the Holy Spirit, but also is a picture of how the soul and the body were united together in a, in a nexus, in, a, in an unbreakable bond. At least that was the intention um, uh, by the Lord. Um, but then at death, we believe that the souls of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness, so they're completely perfected. Um, their sanctification is completed um, by the Holy Spirit, um, absolutely and do immediately pass into glory. So we believe that the souls of believers at the time of their death are separated from their bodies and go into the presence of God and what we would refer to today as heaven, um, where uh, Jesus is in his flesh, in his living flesh. Um, That is where the souls of all um, the righteous um, are, um, along with the the angels and the cherubim and seraphim and um, all the host of heaven. Um, so the souls of believers immediately enter into glory. Uh, and, but it doesn't stop there. I mean, I think, you know, often we sort of, at least sometimes we can just stop, right? That's what happens at death. Um, but the catechism goes on. It says, and their bodies, um, as Mike pointed out, being still united to Christ, do rest in their graves till the resurrection. Um, and so, um, Yes, to answer your question, Mike, um, that is exactly the language of the catechism, that, um, that Jesus Christ, by his spirit, remains united to our bodies even after our souls are separated from them. And I think that's a really huge um, point of all of this as we think about um, the treatment of the dead and the treatment of the bodies of the dead, is that they remain, um, as Paul describes in First. Corinthians 6, um, vessels, temples of the Holy Spirit. Um, They're sacred in that way. They're holy um, because they're sanctified by the presence of the Spirit and being united to Christ. And even the language of that, um, 
uh, phrase, they rest in their graves till the resurrection. Um, and that is um, the language of the scriptures. The scripture also often uses, um, for, the, for the faithful at least, particularly um, uses the language of rest for death or even sleep. Um, and, um, you know, Paul uses that language in First Corinthians or First Thessalonians um, 4, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with them. And that's the, the verse that is used as the proof text for that portion of the catechism question, um, which that verse teaches us two things, that that death for the faithful can be likened to sleep, um, which indicates that, you know, what happens if you fall asleep? Well, you wake up, right? Um, and it also, you sleep in Jesus. You sleep in union with Christ. You sleep with him um, in some sense. And to be clear, um, there is, a, a, I would say, a false teaching um, that exists in some corners of Christendom that is described as soul sleep, um, I don't know if any of you have heard of this. I'm sure some of you have. So soul sleep is the idea that I would not endorse. Um, it is the idea that somehow our souls don't have any sort of conscious awareness of anything, but there's just sort of a, a um, you, you're just kind of in a void. You, as though your souls are asleep until the resurrection, and then you, your whole body wakes up essentially with your soul. Um, and I don't think the scriptures teach that. I think the scriptures clearly teach that um, whatever it means to be a disembodied person, um, to be a person without a body, um, there is consciousness, um, there is um, awareness that souls have of um, their, uh, their reality in heaven, um, that they are in the presence of God, that there is a calmness, there is a peace, um, there is even a, an adoration of God that takes place for the souls of the righteous. Um, I do think, as I mentioned in the sermon, we should be careful about attributing, you know, really bodily, physical function to souls because souls are unclothed until the resurrection. They're not um, embodied. And so there's, you know, there's mystery here, but these are some distinctions I think that we, that we need to think about and talk about. Does that help answer your question? Appreciate you giving me a chance to talk about that. It's good to talk about these things. Yeah, and, and obviously the argument that I'm making, I think the scriptures make, um, is that the, the sanctifying presence of the Spirit, our union with Jesus, um, impacts how we should treat the bodies of the faithful, um, particularly, and generally the bodies of all human beings, um, but particularly the faithful in Christ. Any other questions or comments from on the question of topic of Christian burial. Very good. Well, I know that last Sunday, what I, as I mentioned, um, was somewhat countercultural in some ways, even within the context of the Christian church in the United States today. And um, I appreciate you all being a congregation that is willing to kind of hear um, challenging things and, and allowing me to challenge you and perhaps to think differently about things. And um, I'm grateful for that. And I'm happy to talk more um, with any of you privately or whenever about any questions that you might have or concerns about anything that I said um, this past Sunday. Um, anybody, did anybody read after last Sunday's 
school class, uh, The Emotional Life of Christ by B.B. Warfield. Anybody go look that up? Yeah? Had you read that before, Lauren? What'd you think? Yeah, it is excellent. Yeah, I think it's a really creative, interesting piece of theology that Warfield does. Um, this is the essay, uh, The Emotional Life of Our Lord, I think it's titled, um, which you can Google and find for free on the internet. Um, so I would commend it to you. It's an interesting essay. Really what he's doing is just takes a kind of fine-tooth comb to the Gospels and really tries to understand the movements of Jesus' heart um, as recorded to us by the, the, the Gospel writers and, and think about what does it mean for Jesus to have an emotional life um, as a person? What, what were the emotions that he that he had consistently throughout um, his days um, during his ministry. Very good. All right, so let's, um, let's jump into some, um, some of the, the content today. So first, I just want to start here. I've got some things prepared that I want to talk about um, on question six, or in chapter 16 to 19, but do you know if you have specific things that jumped out at you um, in those chapters um, that you would like to ask a question about or make a comment about or um, bring to our attention in chapters 16 to 19. The Lord, the Lord, is that chapter 16 focuses on Exodus 34 and God's self-revelation to Moses. Um, chapter 17 focuses on Isaiah 55 and is entitled, His Ways Are Not Our Ways. Um, chapter 18 talks about Yearning Bowels, um, that uh, antiquated, more archaic translation of, um, that you see in the King James, um, the, the bowels um, of God being a, a way that describe his heart, his yearning for his people. And then rich in mercy, um, Dane picks up on that phrase in Ephesians 2, that God is rich in mercy towards us. Anything? All right, let's, um, let's jump in then, and you can feel free to interrupt me as we go, if you like. Um, I, th- I want to start, if you look on your handout, I have this question, is God like Jesus? Um, because that's something that we have talked about that's come up in various ways. Dane has talked about it, I think rightfully so, in his book at various times. Um, and it's something that I've heard you all say as we've discussed this book, that that it, it, in some ways it's easier to think about um, the heart of Jesus for us as being one of mercy and grace and uh, forgiveness and compassion. And it's sometimes harder to think about the Father in those terms, um, that, there, that we can um, sort of naturally fall into a, a distinction between Jesus and his attitude towards us and the Father and his posture towards us. Um, does that make sense, that difference? Does that resonate with folks? Is that something that people think about some at times? I see a few, a few nods out there. Yeah. I think one of the reasons for that is that, um, well, I'd be curious before I speculate on the reasons for that. Anybody have thoughts about why that might be something that we wrestle with at times as believers? Yeah, that's true. Yeah. 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 God is spirit. 
as our catechism says. Yeah. 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 So Roy's saying that maybe part of the distinction is just the the incarnation gives us a more concrete picture of who Jesus is, and the Father remains more abstract because of his spiritual nature. Mm-hmm. But I start with the New Testament, and I don't think anything I learned there really got me. Or at least I, it would have been hard for me to get in just in the Old Testament without any kind of context or training. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's that's a fair point, Jeremy. I think um, what I would say is, so Jeremy is essentially saying that um, the Old Testament, um, which is, of course, largely where we form our impressions about the Father, I think I'm just speaking generally here, not necessarily commending this approach, but... Um, can be perceived, at least on a surface level, to um, to be more about judgment um, than the new, um, and and so and so the New Testament focuses, of course, explicitly on the person of Jesus in more direct ways, um, and so there can be that distinction between the two. I, I think that's I appreciate you bringing that up, Jeremy. I think that's really um, I think that's true for a lot of people's experience. I think that many folks find what you're describing to be true as well, that, that if they press into the Old Testament and uh, really read it carefully, and um, they, will, they discover often that there is a lot of mercy and grace and um, emphasis on God's uh, kindness and compassion to us um, in the Old Testament uh, more than perhaps is, uh, you know, understood easily. Um, and I would say the thing about the New Testament, if you press into it, um, you, know, you, know, you know who the biblical figure is who talks about hell the most, right? For example, <laughs> um, it's Jesus. Um, so, uh, you know, there's a lot of judgment in the, in the New Testament too, um, if you really press into it, uh, which is interesting. A lot more than people give credit for sometimes, um, particularly in the Gospels and in the book of Revelation, um, which is largely about judgment. Um, and so Jesus certainly doesn't see any uh, contradiction between those things, um, and, um, and we shouldn't either. But I, th- I think you're right, Jeremy, in terms of identifying a sort of a way that many of us kind of fall into reading the Old Testament, New Testament. Even sometimes you'll see, um, I mean, there are some Christian teachers that have done this explicitly. Um, um, I'm not referring here to you know, people in our denomination, but outside of, in the general evangelical world, you have some people who will directly pit 
um, the Old and the New Testaments against each other and to say that, you know, sort of somehow the, the Old Testament um, became essentially irrelevant when Jesus came and brought the, you know, brought the new way of, of, um, of God into the world, uh, which I think is a, a deep failure to understand biblical hermeneutics and how the covenants work. Um, so I think that's exactly, I think that's right. What else? Anybody else have thoughts about why this distinction forms? Yeah. James. Um, Happy birthday, by the way. Distance. Yeah. I appreciate that, James. I think that's really honest. And you're probably speaking for more than just yourself there in terms of that, that dynamic of focusing on the Father as a means of kind of keeping your distance from God because that's easier. That feels safer in some ways, perhaps. Yeah. Donna, did you have your hand up? Okay. I'm sorry. Mike? Mm-hmm. You know, there's famine, and there's a flood, there's <laughs> Sodom and Gomorrah, there's, mm-hmm. there's, you know, things like the Tower of Babel, and, mm-hmm. you know, people being scattered, and, mm-hmm. and, and those are easy stories to to teach, and, and they teach kids, it, you know, to be a bad thing, and there's <laughs> consequences, sure. right? But if that's what we focus on, that tends to then color our thought process for the rest of our lives. Yeah.
we start off with the easy ones, but then that shapes like how we think of them the rest of our lives. And it's, it's harder to go back and yeah. erase that, that image of yeah. God's angry at me all the time. Yeah. Yeah, many, many, I think that's right, um, Mike. Uh, Mike is making the point that we often learn the Old Testament stories first as children, and particularly our parents may gravitate towards um, those stories which talk about God's judgment and that, that and there, there are a number to choose from in the Old Testament, um, certainly. And, um, and it's interesting because the New Testament, I mean, there are some exceptions to this. There's, you know, Ananias and Sapphira, that kind of thing, but most of what the New Testament talks about in terms of judgment are predictions, right? Uh, predictions of what is going to take place in 70 AD um, to the opponents of Jesus, predictions about what is going to take place at the end of time uh, when Jesus returns, but they're not necessarily recording historical events, you know, that take place. Whereas in the Old Testament, there are a lot of recorded events, which are events of judgment, the flood, the Tower of Babel, um, Sodom and Gomorrah, um, the destruction of, you know, the Canaanites by Israel, um, all sorts of things, or Pharaoh, the plagues, you know, all that. Um, so that, yeah, I think that's, that's fair too, that there, that weight can, can be portrayed that way. Um, I, I would say that I think also part of this dynamic is um, that, you know, you think about, so the Bible teaches clearly on one hand, um, God is three persons, um, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, um, and the, the Bible also teaches at the same time equally um, that God is one in, in being. Um, and I think that sometimes, I mean, there have been different, you know, it's, it's, always, it's impossible really for human beings to fully wrap their minds around how to hold on to both those things at once, right? Um, which is what the scriptures tell us that we have to do, right? We can't Right, if you've ever heard someone give you a clover leaf and describe, tell you that's what the Trinity's like, they don't don't do that. <laughs> right, that's uh, that's you know, some you know a fairly substantial heresy. Um, um, you know, um, and it, same with the whole you know gas, water, ice deal. You know that that's also you know we don't want to do that. Um, that's modalism, right? Um, so. We have to hold on to both these things at once, um, that God is, um, uh, you know, three persons, uh, one being. And I think that for many of us, we gravitate more toward a God is three persons than we do God is one being. I, I'm just speaking generally here, this is my suspicion, but I think that that's, you know, I think in some ways that's where we sometimes land. Um, and, and so that, that is, I think, maybe part of this, too, is just a sort of Trinitarian reflection. And even if you read modern Trinitarian theology, most of it focuses on um, the economic trinity, um, which means the trinity as it works, as the, the triune God um, operates in history. Um, and so distinctions between the three persons, essentially, is what I'm saying. That's where much of the work that has hap happened in the last century has focused on um, the distinctions between the persons and their work. Um, just in, in, I'm talking like high-level academic theology. Um, and that, of course, trickles down and influences, you know, the way that, that we interact with these things as well, even if we're not reading those books. Um, but the Bible also speaks equally strongly and clearly about the oneness of God, um, that God is one. Um, 
And, and I do wonder if that's not something that we should talk about more um, um, in our preaching and our teaching and just our conversation, that kind of thing about the scriptures. Um, and that might be a good corrective for us, even for some of the things that we're describing. Um, certainly, the New Testament assumes this, and Jesus makes a big deal out of it. So two kind of fundamental questions um, or verses. Actually, I'll read another one from John 10, too. Um, so John 1, 18, um, the apostle says, as a kind of summary of what the word is about, um, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Um, and I think that is a really remarkable verse. It's one to meditate on. Um, uh, what John is saying is that, that the, the unseen, invisible God, the God that dwells in unapproachable light, as Paul describes him um, in Timothy, um, that God has made himself known, the Father, the God who is at the Father's side has made him known. He has revealed him to us. That, and what, what John is saying there is that the Son is a true and full revelation of the Father. Um, and Jesus unpacks this as well um, in John 14, um, before Jesus uh, dies the next, uh, next day. Um, he's with his disciples. Um, he's just spoken to them about going away. That he's going to go away and make a place for them. He's going to go to the Father, he says, um, and do that. Um, he's referring there to his death and resurrection and also to his eventual ascension to heaven. And Philip, one of the twelve, said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And it's interesting because this, in many ways, is at the heart of all of the Old Testament, right? It's this desire to see the Father, um, you see that in Moses, um, you see that in David in the Psalms, um, you see that in the revelation that Isaiah receives in Isaiah 6. Um, Show us the Father, Philip says, and it is enough for us if we just could see the Father. And Jesus said to him, and I, I love the, the words here, right, the tone that you hear, I think, in Jesus' voice. Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Um, and so Jesus there is pointing to this total unity between himself and the Father, um, which doesn't blur the distinction between the persons, um, but it does say that they are one God. Um, united, um, one God, um, forever. And uh, that's not something that changed um, in the incarnation of Jesus. Um, and of course, this is a major theme of Jesus's ministry, particularly in John. We see this come about, and indeed it's the main reason why um, the, um, his enemies want to kill him is because he insists on the oneness of the Father and himself. Um, in John 10, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. 
and then the response of the Jews. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Um, Jesus goes on in verse 38. He's talking about in 37. If I am not doing the works of the Father, my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. Um, I really do think that this point is one that is really significant and one that we should hold before us, that the revelation of Jesus Christ is a full and complete revelation of, of God, of who he is. It's not insufficient. It's not, there's not some part of God um, that is hidden from us in Jesus Christ. I think that that is really, really important for us to wrestle with. I, um, on the theological exams committee that I serve on, we had a candidate come several years ago and he really wanted to emphasize the unknowability of God, um, which I understand. Of course, the scriptures do speak in that way about God at different times. Um, that God is incomprehensible in a sort of, you know, philosophical sense. Um, um, trying to push against him and also and to say, look, you can say that about God, but you need to connect it with, you know, other places in the scripture that speak so frankly about how God is known fully, um, comprehensively in Jesus Christ, that Jesus really has revealed the Father to us in a full way, um, in a complete way. And that certainly is one of the major emphases of the New Testament. Um, one of the theologians that's been most particularly helpful for me on this point is a man named Thomas Torrance, who is um, a Scottish theologian um, who uh, lived in the 20th century, um, Presbyterian. Um, Torrance is remarkable. He is maybe my favorite theologian of the 20th century. Um, He's certainly up there with uh, men like Bonhoeffer and, and others. Um, so Torrance, and really in many ways, his whole project is about this idea of the oneness of God and the revelation of Jesus um, as um, the one who discloses the Father to us. So just, I want to read a couple quotes. So he talks about multiple times this story of something that happened to him when he was uh, in World War II, he was a, um, a chaplain um, in, in, you know, was serving with British troops in Italy um, during the invasion of Italy. Um, and he talks about this experience that he has. Um, he says, when daylight filtered through, I came across a young soldier, Private Phillips, scarcely 20 years old, lying mortally wounded on the ground, who clearly had not long to live. As I knelt down and bent over him, he said, Padre, or Father, is God really like Jesus. I think it's, it's fascinating to think about that being, I mean, that's kind of the question, right? Um, if you're in that situation, um, a young man who's, um, you know, bleeding to death um, on a battlefield, who's been probably raised in the church, um, and you're wrestling with the idea that you are about to meet God, being God's presence. Um, is God really like Jesus? <laughs> I mean, that's, that's the heart of things. He says, Torrance says, I assured him that he was the only God that there is, that the God who had come to us in Jesus has shown his face to us 
and poured out his love to us as our Savior. As I prayed and commended him to the Lord Jesus, he passed away. Um, and he talks later in his essays and memoirs about how this was a really formative experience to him as a pastor um, and made him want to press into this question um, pastorally. Um, he really, in many ways, spent the rest of his career doing that, um, trying to articulate the fundamental truth that Jesus, that God is like Jesus, um, that Jesus does give you a real picture of God. And I think, you know, this is part of what, we're, when we think about um, the, what is new in the new covenant, um, this is a fundamental part of that, that we see God face to face. Um, that's only spoken of of one person, of course, in the Old Testament um, um, in Numbers. It describes Moses as having communion with God face to face, which is it's a, a bit hard to understand because we also have the story in Exodus 34, right, where um, God says he wants to see, or Moses says he wants to see the face of God, and God says, you can't see my face, and I'm going to hide you in the rock, and you can just see my back, and that's where he says, the Lord, the Lord, um, merciful and gracious, all those things. Um, in 2 Corinthians, um, Paul says this, chapter 3, verse 12, he says, since we have such a hope, we are very bold not like Moses. And I think you just have to like, think about how astounding that is. That may not sound that provocative to us um, because we're not, you know, first century Jews or whatever. But to say that we have something that Moses didn't have in terms of communion with God is astounding. Um, since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. And there, of course, he refers to the way that Moses veiled his face when he would come down from the mountain of Sinai. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. And he's describing you know, contemporaneous events, that this is what in his mind takes place when the law is read in the synagogues and that there's a veil over it because that veil can only be removed through Jesus. Um, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Um, and that, I think that's just a fascinating thing to think about, that one of the things that is new in the New Testament is the New Covenant, is that we do have, I mean, we, I think we have to describe it as a more full revelation of God. It's not inconsistent. It's not um, at odds with the Old Testament at all but it is a, a necessary maturation of the revelation of God that takes place in the Old Covenant. And it has the effect of us seeing God face to face without veil. Um, so Torrance, I'm gonna read this as a long quote, but I think it's really beautiful and, and worth thinking about. Jesus insisted that he and the Father were one, John 10, 30, that what his Father had been doing hitherto, he was continuing to do in an unbroken continued continuity of divine activity um, so that there, there's Jesus was just doing and this is important to say that 
Jesus was not doing something different in his ministry that the Father had not already been towards his people in the Old Testament. Um, it was an unbroken continuity of divine activity. He who had seen Jesus had seen the Father, so there was no ground for anxiety or fear. It should be or, not of. Um, and I think that gets to the heart of things, because there is that anxiety and fear sometimes, um, like what he described in that young soldier. What the Father is and does, Jesus is and does. And what Jesus is and does, the Father is and does. And this is the line that I love the most. There is, in fact, no God behind the back of Jesus. I think that's a wonderful picture. There's no God that is sort of hidden behind the back of Jesus that is not known in him, is what Torrance is saying. No act of God other than the act of Jesus. No God but the God we see and meet in him. And, and we should say, you know, here, Torrance is, and this is how we have to talk about the Trinity. He is here very strongly emphasizing the oneness of God, right? And it's okay to do that. It's also okay to emphasize the plurality of the persons of God. Um, and what the Bible doesn't ever do is teach us how exactly to put those things together. It just says... God is one. God is three persons. God is, and and, and we, should, we should not be afraid to speak strongly both of those things um, at the same time. Um, there's no act of God other than the act of Jesus, no God but the God we see and meet in him. Jesus Christ is the open heart of God, the very love and life of God poured out to redeem humankind. The mighty hand and power of God stretched out to heal and save sinners. All things are in God's hands. And of course, that's a Jesus talks about the hands of God in his hands, um, in his ministry, and John particularly. But the hands of God and the hands of Jesus in life and in death are the same. God is not one thing in Christ and another thing in himself. He has not shown us one face in Jesus Christ, but kept his real face hidden from us behind the inscrutability of his ultimate unknowableness. So even if there is a sense in which God is incomprehensible to us in his, in his being, um, we can be confident that there's not some thing that he hasn't disclosed to us that we need to know, that, that we, we're going to find out that, you know, is different than what he's revealed to himself in Jesus. I think it's important to say that. Um, he has not sent Jesus Christ to be a mere messenger whose words and deeds of love he does not back up with the pledge of his own being and reality and love. On the contrary, God has wholly and unconditionally committed himself to us in the incarnation of his dear son in Jesus Christ, so that all he eternally is and will be as God Almighty is pledged in Jesus Christ for us and for our salvation. Jesus Christ are so, and God are so utterly one in being and action that God does not, cannot go back on Jesus Christ and his cross, for that is who God is. He who came in Jesus Christ, and that is what God does, what Jesus Christ does. Um, so there you have it. I know it's a lot of, you know, dense language, that kind of thing, but I think it's important to hold things like this before us, um, to think about the person of Jesus, the oneness of God and his revelation in him. Yes, ma'am, Mary.
Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Yes. 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 Yeah, absolutely. It certainly teaches the importance of catechizing our children with theology. Is that what you mean? Not just the Bible, but also. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's a system. Yeah, that's that's right. I think I think it does speak to that, Mary. It speaks to the need for us to not only teach the the bare um, data of Scripture, the stories, uh, the narratives, but um, but also, yes, to catechize our children. Um, and I think it also speaks to, and I would argue this, that the Gospels should always be central in some way um, to our children's knowledge of the Scriptures and our and our um, the gospel, and I'm not, I mean, y'all know, like, I have a very high view of the Old Testament. Um, don't hear what I'm not saying there. Um, but the gospels are, this is why we, we stand for the gospels in our worship service, um, because they are the heart of the scriptures, and all the Old Testament looks forward to them and is reinterpreted back through the gospels, all of the New Testament, uh, the epistles reflect on what takes place in the gospels, um, you know, everything sort of meets in the middle, so to speak. And, um, and we should do that because we really do believe that the Gospels in their record of Jesus Christ are the most mature and glorious revelation of who God is. Um, and again, teach the Old Testament to your children. I'm not saying don't do that. Um, but don't neglect the Gospels. Yes, ma'am. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yes. Well, I think certainly we can um, pray to God um, in his in his eternal being, wisdom and power. Um, you know, certainly the Old Testament is full of examples of that, particularly um, where people just simply pray um, to God um, more generally. I do think that it's it's a my habit, my practice. Um, because of the teaching of Jesus, who instructs us to say, you know, how, how should we pray, Jesus? This, when you pray, say this, our Father. Um, and so Jesus gives us a kind of language for prayer in the Lord's Prayer specifically that, that addresses the Father. Um, and I think that's appropriate for us. So yeah, I've, ex- I've described prayer the way that you just did, Trudy, that prayer is addressed to the Father through the Son by the power of the Spirit. Um, and I think that's right. Um, but I think, I think we, should, we should pray, certainly explicitly in a Trinitarian way. Um, but when I say the oneness of God, I don't so much mean emphasizing the um, God as, as a sort of generic being, 
I mean more that we should be very careful to understand the identity um, of the Father and the Son and the Spirit all being, that they're not being any, that, that they are united, that they are one, um, and that there's no contradiction, there's no, um, there, there is a unity between them even as we pray. I guess, I don't know if that makes sense or helps, but yeah. Yeah, I'd, I certainly would encourage us, I think, generally to pray in a Trinitarian way. To, and this isn't to say we can't address Jesus in our prayers or we can't address the Spirit in our prayers. I think we can. Um, but I do think that, the, and you see this in the history of the church, that historically the church has prayed um, to the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. Um, and you see that in all corners of the church the last 2,000 years. Yes. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Right. There, there's a, there's a unity of purpose. Yes, Jeremy. And we'll probably need to close there. Yeah. Well, yeah, and I, and I do think I should say in the Old Testament that when we see the word Yahweh, that is a, addressed to the triune God. Um, that is how I would interpret the word you know, Yahweh in the Old Testament. And certainly that is how most prayers in the Old Testament are framed, right? They're spoken to the Lord, but, but in Hebrew it's Yahweh um, is the language that's used. I think that's right. All right, let's stand and pray. Our children are returning. Father, we give you thanks for your word. We thank you for um, your son and the revelation of your person and being and character that he is. I pray that we would cling to you, Father, um, through the trustworthy revelation you've given of yourself in Jesus Christ, even this day. I ask it in Christ's name. Amen.